You're listening to TIP. I do think tech is where the money is. That's why I called the book that. You know, there's this, we're still fairly early on in this digital revolution where the economy is going to be run increasingly on software. The economy is going to be increasingly dominated by zeros and ones. You know, the product that we're producing is non physical. On today's episode, we bring back fan favorite Adam Ziesel. Adam is the founder of Gravity Capital Management and the author of the new book, Where the Money Is. For those of you who missed my previous conversation with Adam, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that episode, which is episode number MI196. During that episode, we break down Adam's BMP checklist he lays out in his book, which stands for Business, Management, and Price. Now, Adam has been very vocal about Amazon and Alphabet being great buying opportunities today. But during today's episode, I wanted to touch on a number of other companies outside of big tech, specifically Adobe, Airbnb, DraftKings, FanDuel, Redfin, and others. We also touch on how he narrows down the giant world of stocks to a select few, as well as his thoughts on hedging inflation in today's market environment. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to mention that this is actually the last time I'll be hosting the Millennial Investing Show before I hand it off to the new host, Rebecca Hotsko. I just wanted to send a thank you to you all who have been loyal listeners of the show and just so supportive of the podcast. It's been great connecting with many of the listeners over the past year or so to get to know some of you and have the opportunity to chat about finance and investing topics with you all. From the bottom of my heart, it really means the world to me that you guys have supported the show and been loyal listeners. And it's been a lot of fun to host the show for you all. I know Rebecca will pick things right up where we left off, so make sure you stick around for all of the great content she has in store for you. As I mentioned in the past, I will be producing episodes for the We Study Billionaires feed, so that's where you'll be able to find my content in the near future if you'd like to keep in touch. Or you can just give me a follow on Twitter at Clay underscore Fink. With that, sit back and relax as I bring you today's conversation with Adam Ziesel. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today we bring back fan favorite, Adam Ziesel. Adam, welcome back to the show. Clay, thanks for having me back. Well, it really is a privilege having you back on the show. In your recent appearances in the media, which you know I always naturally tune into, you've expressed your interest in Amazon and Alphabet, and you hit on these two companies in the book. But I'd imagine most people aren't only invested in a handful of big tech names. So I invited you back on just to dive a little bit deeper into some of the other names that are outside of big tech, maybe even the next big tech 5, 10, 20 years down the road. So before we dive into the individual picks, how about we start out by just talking about your process for finding and selecting companies to you know, filter down the world of stocks, and then you can really dive deeper into looking into the financials and such. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, Clay, thanks for having me back. I've done a bunch of podcasts and interviews in conjunction with promoting the book, Where the Money Is, but few have been better in terms of preparation than yours. So that's why I was happy to come back. Some of the others, maybe not quite so uh, ready to come back, but for you, absolutely. So it's great to visit with you again. Um, In terms of process, at the beginning, when you're a stock picker, it's very hard because you just, I compare it to the 
the image of a river. You know, the investment ideas are like rivers and you desperately want to be in that river. And I remember, how do I jump in? How do I get started? And then the, the answer, of course, is just to jump in. You know, and Buffett says he's has said to people who've asked him for his advice about how to get started stock picking, he said, just order all the annual reports and start with the A's and read them until you get to the Z's. And that's his equivalent of just jump in, just start reading about companies and, and follow your instincts. What do you like as a consumer? That's important. Or even better, maybe if you're in a business, if you're in sales, you'll know better than me or you, Clay, whether Salesforce is the best CRM platform or whether there's, you know, it's ripe for disruption. If you're in engineering, you'll know whether Ansys is the best computer simulation for prototypes or whether Altair is better. I mean, I'm just giving examples of some that I've done a little bit of research on sports betting, which we're going to talk about, you know, which is the best app. You just start digging in. And then, of course, Go through my business management price filter. What's the quality of the business? What's the quality of the management? And what's the price the market's asking you to pay? That really is my process. And now, of course, now that I've been doing it 25 plus years, it's not what I, how to source ideas. It's how to, you know, how to triage between them because I have so many coming at me because for every alphabet that I invest in, you know, there's 10 that I've looked at kind of related to alphabet that I've rejected. And so which lane to go down next is the question for me. So it's it's almost like now it's like, how do I stop drowning in the river of ideas? But that's a good problem to have. Do companies have to be a certain size for you? It sounds like no. So I'm curious. No, no. Obviously, when you, you write a book, George Orwell said, uh, all books are failures. And I know what he means now that I've completed one and published one because there's always things you'd go back and change. And if there was one thing I'd go back and change, it's to say to people, look, this is not just about mega caps. You know, I happen to talk about mega caps a lot, like Alphabet and Amazon, but there's this whole other generation of companies below them that have every bit of economic power that Alphabet and Amazon do, but aren't mega cap companies like Adobe in document productivity and Ansys, which I mentioned in computer simulation and uh, Intuit, you know, for small business software, there's a whole nother raft, dozens of companies below the Microsofts and Apples and Amazons that are really interesting because, you know, they have the market dominance of these mega caps, but aren't mega cap yet. And so <laughs> that's a good opportunity. So, yeah. So, no, I do not discriminate on market cap. And you give, give me a small cap company that dominates its niche and I'm in. Like I own Nathan's Hot Dogs, which has a $300 million market cap. And then I own Alphabet and Amazon. So, what's the commonality? They both are very well managed and they're both, they both dominate their market. It's funny you mentioned Adobe because I actually just released a mini episode talking about them. And, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion that in comparing it to something like Alphabet, the moat is very strong, but it might not be quite as strong as what Alphabet has. Since Adobe is a much smaller company relative to Alphabet, that gives it a lot more potential upside over yeah. the long run. It mm -hmm. gives me as an individual investor, you know, potentially an advantage because I'm ready to weather through whatever market swings come through yeah. Adobe. <laughs> Has those temporary headwinds, but eventually, over the long run, you know the the superior business, as you say, is going to win out. Yeah, I generally like Adobe very much, and its management is also top notch. And I think its moat is as strong as Alphabet's personally. I mean, 
you know, in terms of PDF, I mean, PDF is a noun and a verb, so that's pretty good. But that's actually the smaller side of the business. The larger side of the business is this creative cloud where, you know, everybody who wants to do graphics and visuals uses Adobe and it has tremendous network effects because if you and I are collaborating on a project and you're on Adobe, then I have to use Adobe. And it's not just me and you usually, it's 20 people collaborating on a project. So you can't be, you know, every, we all have to standardize on one. So it's kind of a winner take all kind of thing. And um, so I like Adobe very much. I, I have not, I've owned it off and on, but it's, I just have to say it is more expensive than Alphabet and Amazon. Now, chapter 11 of your book is titled, Buy What You Know, But With a Twist. So I'm curious, given what you know and what your circle of competencies are, what company or what industry are you most bullish on outside of Amazon and Alphabet? Right. Well, let me just explain what I meant with buy what you know with a twist. Like Peter Lynch was famous in the 80s and 90s for saying buy what you know. And that's still very good advice. As I said earlier, you know, you'll know Salesforce or you'll know Adobe if you're in marketing or if you're an engineer, you'll know Ansys or if you're in construction, you'll know Autodesk and you'll know the competitors and who's going to dominate and who's going to be vulnerable. But now in the tech age, in the digital age, the buy what you know comes with a twist because A lot of people in my generation, I'm in my 50s, the stocks we know the best are old economy stocks whose future is probably behind them. You know, I'm thinking about banks, like we know banks really well. And Wells Fargo used to be a really reliable compounding machine, but I just can't see how that's going to work. If you're a bank in the early 21st century, when you have all these digital competitors coming at you, offering to do things faster, cheaper, and better for their customers, just strikes me that they're kind of roadkill waiting to happen. So you have to buy what you know, but be careful. You have to, there's a twist. So I do think that tech generally, whether it's large cap or, you know, mega cap or large cap or mid cap or small cap, I do think tech is where the money is. That's why I called the book that, you know, that there's this, we're still fairly early on in this digital revolution where the economy is going to be run increasingly on software. The economy is going to be increasingly dominated by zeros and ones. You know, the product that we're producing is non-physical. It's not manufactured. It's engineered. So tech is my number one sector waiting. My number two sector waiting, since you ask, is uh, aerospace. And I write about this some in the book through this wonderful company called Heiko, H-E-I-C-O, which is capitalism at its best, where 30 or 40 years ago, uh, a guy who came out of the Graham and Dodd School of Investing found this little company that happened to make generic aerospace parts. And he and his two young sons bought it. And um, 30 years later, it's now a $20 billion market cap, precisely because they made generic aerospace parts safer. I love aerospace as an industry structurally because, first of all, there's a lot of growth in aerospace. I think 75% of the world's population has yet to set foot on an airplane. So it's really a call on you know, rising standards of living because as people in Latin America and Africa and especially Asia get more disposable income, they want to fly. They want to see America. They want to see Europe. They want to see Australia, wherever. 
Now, the airlines are a terrible way to play that because it's a commodity business, boom and bust. They've gone bankrupt, you know, but many times Buffett says, you know, if you add up all the profits since Orville Wright started the airplane, there'd probably be a negative sign next to it. So they're bad businesses. But the companies that make the parts are very good businesses because it takes a lot of engineering. In some ways, it's very technical, tech oriented. But on the other hand, once you're specced in an airplane with a certain part, whether it's on the fuselage or the engine or the cabin, the airlines, it's very hard for the airlines to swap that part out. So you're sort of specced in. There's 2 million parts on an airplane. So it's really hard to kind of like mix and match. So if you're specced in on a component part on that airplane, you've got a generation of growth. And that's why I like aerospace. But of course, capitalism being capitalism, what happened was companies that were specced in like GE and Honeywell and General Dynamics, they would take advantage of this position and they would raise prices because the air, they knew when these parts wore out, the airlines had no choice but to come back to GE who had manufactured the original part. They couldn't go, you know... Southwest Airlines, American Airlines couldn't go and say to company XYZ and say, hey, make this part for me. It's like, well, no, wait, it's really hard. And I don't know, you know. And then even if they could get that, the FAA would say, well, hold on a second. Is this part safe? So what Heiko did over 30 years is made generic parts safe. And so they sell at a 30, 40% discount to GE and Honeywell and the other folks who have been abusing their monopoly positions, and yet they still earn good returns on capital high cut. So look up that stock chart and you'll see how capitalism works. And then there are other aerospace companies I own, actually uh, Woodward, which makes parts for the engine as like a, a generation of growth in the in the next generation of jets. Airbus, actually a European company, has really been kicking uh, Boeing's butt. So there's a lot to like in aerospace. And that's my second biggest holding in terms of sector. I also wanted to ask you about one of the top headlines for 2022, which I'm sure you've been asked about quite a bit, is inflation. Many stock investors will tell you that the best inflation hedge is to own productive businesses with pricing power and hold those businesses over very long periods of time. However, even Warren Buffett has started heavily allocating to oil companies as he seems to be very bullish on oil and you know, probably wants some sort of inflation protection by buying those productive businesses, but in the commodity sector. What are your thoughts on, you know, hedging inflation for the years to come? It's an excellent question. I've given it quite a bit of thought. You're right. Even if I weren't asked about it as a money manager, professional money manager, I have to think about it. I don't think Buffett, first of all, is buying oil stocks as a hedge against inflation. I don't think he's doing it for that reason. He likes buying businesses that have had long cycles of underinvestment. And then suddenly, you know, because in a commodity business like oil, there's supply and then there's demand, right? And what he's noticed is over the last five or 10 years, the supply is going down in large part, not in large part, but driven in part by these ESG folks who say you can't if you're BlackRock invest in fossil fuels. And the Black Rocks of the world are telling ExxonMobil, divest from your fossil fuels. So there's a lot less capital going into finding oil and gas. And yet, every year we demand more of it. You know, Alternatives are probably in our best interest, but it's going to take a long time for alternatives to displace oil and gas. So I think Buffett sees the supply going like this and the demand going like this, and the stocks are cheap. 
So he sees an arbitrage, so to speak, of a few years where oil prices will remain high because supply is going to be constrained and demand will remain high. I mean, he did this with silver, for example. He studied silver for 25 years and he watched as the inventories declined every year. And until they hit sort of the demand point of for silver, then he bought. His bet on railroads was, you know, there used to be 80 railroads, now there are eight. And so he, he loves industries where the supply is contracting and the demand is steady. And so I think that's why he bought oil. I don't think it's a, an inflation hedge. Now, in terms of inflation itself, Clay, I mean, I tend to be pretty constructive on inflation in the sense that, you know, I was a young kid in the 70s when we had this stagflation that people were talking about and OPEC and sustainable high oil prices and so forth. And, you know, Paul Volcker had to raise rates up to 20% and so forth. I just don't think we're in that period. People are freaking out because the 10-year yield is 3%. It's like back where it was in what? 18, something like that. And then you sort of think commonsensically through, like, why do we have inflation? Is it a structural kind of thing where all of a sudden there's not enough cotton and not enough steel and not enough food and not enough, you know, everything that feeds inflation? Or is it a short-term thing caused by the fact that during COVID, we all got a ton of stimulus so we had more supply of money, more demand, and then we had these supply chain disruptions. So demand up, supply down, oh, inflation. And you know, and the cure for high prices is high prices. So you can already see signs of inflation rolling off because people are buying less. The Fed is intent on crushing inflation. So they're going to choke off credit so people buy less. So I'm fairly constructive about inflation. But even if it is structural, which I doubt, you know, I went back and looked and read Buffett's writings in the early 80s when inflation was kind of peaking. And he said pretty much just what you said. He said, the best assets to buy are productive assets with pricing power, except you left out one important thing, asset light. So they don't have to reinvest because you have to reinvest in a steel plant. And this year is 100 million to build, and next year is 120, and next year is 150. That's a problem because it eats up your capital inflation. So, productive assets that can grow through pricing power and don't have to reinvest in a lot. Well, guess what industry that is? Tech. It's tech. So, I feel very comfortable, even if inflation is structural, because half my portfolio is tech. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. 
Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Well, let's transition to talk about some individual tech companies. The first one being Airbnb. I believe there's a lot to like about this company. They're founder-led. They started from nothing in 2008 and in 2022 have a $71 billion market cap producing $7 billion in annual revenue over the previous 12 months. And you know, I was looking at their recent quarterly report and I was just seeing some astounding results. 103 million nights and experiences booked during the quarter. That's up 25% year over year. The gross booking value was $17 billion, up 27% year over year. And during the quarter, they had $2.1 billion in revenues, which was up 58% year over year. I thought it was funny in the letter to shareholders, they also put, we're so confident in our long-term growth and profitability that today we're announcing a $2 billion share repurchase program, which I found to be interesting from a kind of a hyper growth type company. I'm curious if you could just touch on Airbnb and maybe talk about maybe some parts where Airbnb doesn't make the cut in your BMP checklist. Yeah, Airbnb is interesting, Clay. I've been studying it some this summer. I mean, it's a noun and a verb, right? So that's a good place to start in terms of the B, right? It's branded. It is the category in some ways. And, you know, as you remember from the book, I say, you know, in the book, you want a business with a small share of a large market and a sustainable edge. So you need three things. So they definitely have a small share of the, you know, overnight stay market. I can't remember what it is, but it's 5% or something like that. And it's a huge market. The founder, Brian Chesky, who you reference, he likes to say, you know, we're dealing in a market the size of oil, as big as the oil market, overnight lodging. So they do have a small share of a large market. So check, check on those two subcategories of the business analysis. I'm not so sure they have the really most important, which is the edge. You know, do they have a sustainable edge like Intuit has in small business software? You know, do they have an edge like uh, Adobe has in document productivity? 
Not so sure. And I'll tell you why. You know, they have 4 million hosts and 6 million listings. So one and a half listing per host. So it's really mom and pops. But, you know, the great thing about capitalism, as I say in the book, is if you identify a market and you, you know, like which Airbnb did, it invented the category, you're going to get competitors, you know, like flies to you know what. And so it has happened. Verbo is not really a competitor because they're a niche competitor. They do single family homes in vacation spots. But Booking.com, which is a European company, which really made their uh, marbles by stitching together a network of hotels in Europe. European hotels are much more bespoke than in US. US, we have chains. European hotels are, you know, little little hotels in different cities. Booking.com was, it became the front facing portal for all those little mini hotels, kind of like Airbnb, but for hotels. Booking.com has taken a real run at this business. And they have a potential edge in the sense that if they do it right, they can put their hotel inventory next to their, what they call their alternative accommodations inventory, their homestay inventory. So they now have 2 million hosts, but six and a half million listings. So Airbnb has more hosts, but Booking.com has more listings, which will tell you that Booking.com is going after more of the corporate side of the business. And by corporate, I don't mean, you know, traveling for work. I mean, see, this is so fascinating about capitalism. Airbnb creates a category, you know, mom and pop want to make a little extra money renting out their place. They do it. It's a huge hit. You know, governments get upset. They get involved. I think we're largely through that. But what's more important, more serious is competitors come and the industry changes. So like people who own apartment buildings are all of a sudden going, hey, you know, why do I have to rent my apartments out for 30 days or a year lease? Why don't I just put them on Booking.com or Airbnb and rent them out per night? I'll sell it retail instead of wholesale. So that's how the business is becoming more corporate. It's not just mom and pops now that are getting into this business. It's professional apartment guys that want to put their inventory on online. And they're mainly choosing booking.com, which you can see because six and a half million listings, two million hosts, that's like three plus per host. I talked to Airbnb about this and they're like, they're determined to stick with the mom and pop model, which I find interesting. Like they say in their prospectus, 75% of our bookings were through individuals. And that was three years ago, their IPO prospectus. And I ask them now, and they're like, yeah, that hasn't significantly changed. I'm like, well, don't you want to take advantage of the corporate growth? I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, sure, we'll take it. But we really believe this business is a mom and pop business. So, I mean, I admire their honesty and I admire their determination, but I'm not so sure this is just a mom and pop business. I mean, how many big businesses do you know that were built on a cottage industry, you know, like renting out? your apartment and your second home. It just feels like the business is going to evolve beyond just mom and pops. So I'm a little nervous about that. And I can booking.com I'm doing research on because they could make a run at Airbnb's market. You talk in the book about, you know, looking at your own experience. So when I look at my own experience, me and my friends, when we go to travel, we stay, call it five, seven days at a place. We're going to Airbnb. So is Booking.com you know, more focused in the European markets for now and expanding for there? Yeah, they're stronger in the European market and they have not done as good a job as they could by their own admission in the American market. So it could be where you know businesses evolve over all sorts of weird, unanticipated ways. It could be that Booking.com dominates Europe and Airbnb dominates the US. But 
Just capitalism has a funny way of finding you. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you and your friends start getting pinged by booking.com. Like, hey, check out our inventory, you know, and see if you want to stay at, you know, you're going to Provo, Utah. See if you can want to do a hotel because we can offer you that. Or do you want to do a, you know, a, a alternative? We can do that. We'll see what happens. But when it's not clear, I just pass, you know, like I'm happy to watch and observe and keep an open mind. And, you know, I admire Chesky because he's not a techie, the CEO. He's not, you know, do you know what his background is? He went to the Rhode Island School of Design. He's a product designer. So in that sense, he's much more like Steve Jobs. And you can feel that when you go to the the app because it's super easy to use and the branding he's done with it and so forth. It's really impressive. But remember, this is also the guy who pre-pandemic, you know, he was going to get into magazines and airlines and cruise ships. I mean, he was pretty wacky. Now, he said he's learned through the pandemic to just to focus on one thing, which is good. But, you know, not too long ago, he was talking about using all that free cash, not for stock repurchase, but, you know, crazy diversifying moves into patently bad businesses like airlines and magazines. So I'm not convinced the B is right, the business. I'm not convinced the M is right. The price is actually fairly cheap. I mean, it's actually, if you believe it has legs, I'm just not convinced it does. Yeah, at a high level, you know, I was seeing, you know, about a multiple price of free cash flow multiple of about 25, a $71 billion market cap and 2.9 billion in free cash flow. And a couple other uh interesting statistics I found was 24% of Airbnb users rented a place for 28 days or more, which kind of falls in line with that trend to work from home. Maybe some millennials, people my age are going out and staying in a new state every single month. And another interesting stat I saw was the insider ownership is about 33% of the stock is owned by insiders. And that's over $20 billion worth of stock, which is incredibly impressive. So, you know, if someone does decide that they do have the moat and, you know, it checks off for someone else personally on the management, talk more about the price for Airbnb. You know, look, in some ways it's a good decision, in my opinion, what investors are faced with Airbnb, because it's a binary decision. Either you believe that, as you say, millennials are going to continue to be digital nomads, be loyal to the Airbnb brand, and you know not have any competition from booking.com or anybody else, then Airbnb is a big winner, big time winner. And you know, I think the revenues this year are going to be $8 billion. So it's not so hard to see them you know, in, in the near future having a $10 billion revenue company and then software companies, as I describe at length in the book. I mean, one of the reasons that tech is where the money is, is because the margins are so enormous because Airbnb, they don't have to keep up the real estate. You know, they don't have to pay taxes on the real estate. They don't have to cut the grass. You know, they just have a freaking software app that connects one group to another group, like no cost of goods, no cost of goods. You know, they have to spend some money, you know, making sure that the customers are happy, you know, that the hosts are happy, that the guests are happy. That customer service element does cut into margins. But, you know, I think you can probably make a reasonable case that, you know, their net margin on an earnings power basis is 20%. But if you do $10 billion revenue company at a 20% net margin, that's $2 billion of net income. And on a $70 billion market cap, that's 35 times. That's a little high, but if you really believe that this thing has legs, then you know it's not going to be 
it's not going to stop at $10 billion, you know. $15 billion at a 30% net margin is $4.5 billion of net income. So play with the numbers like that is what I would recommend, you know. And I think if the bull thesis is correct, the stock is cheap. That's what I think. I'm just not convinced it's correct. Another company that I wanted to discuss today was in the sports betting industry, DraftKings. Not a name I was originally too familiar with, but from a high level, I see an extremely volatile stock, rapidly growing revenues, and a company that is deeply free cash flow negative. And seeing that they're you know unprofitable in a growth company, I wasn't surprised to see Kathy Wood on the list of people who own this company. Does the fact that it's free cash flow negative automatically push it out of your checklist and off of you know a stock that's worth looking into, or is there something underneath the surface that needs to be uncovered? Well, free cash flow being negative does not automatically cross it off. Amazon has been free cash flow or at least net income negative for two thirds of its corporate history, but they did that on purpose. They could make money. They just decided not to make money so they could reinvest and make more money down the road. I don't think DraftKings is in that position, and I'm not a fan of DraftKings, uh, nor am I a particular fan of Kathy Wood, because I'm all about, Clay, sort of the middle way. Like on this hand, you have the stodgy old value investors who say, you know, tech is too expensive and I don't understand it. And well, and that's a very dangerous attitude because tech is the future. Tech is just going to become more and more a, a bigger part of our lives and a bigger part of our economy. So to ignore it and stick your head in the sand willfully and not understand it, instead of taking the time to understand it, is almost cutting off your nose to spite your face. So I don't have a lot of time for those stodgy people. And I'm a former value investor who educated myself about tech and I'm continuing to educate myself about tech because there's always something to learn. On the other hand, you have these crazy pie in the sky people who say every tech company is awesome and is fairly undiscriminating about tech. So, you know, Coinbase, Carvana, all these crappy companies that were sold into the mania, they deserve to be taken out and beaten. So I'm trying to synthesize, you know, old school financial principles, return on capital, dominating your market, moats, free cash flow with these new economy principles, like the world has changed, you know, the, the world is asset light. So there are times when foregoing free cash flow now to build out your moat is good, but DraftKings is not one of them. And I know this because I've studied the business quite closely and I own one of the sports betting companies, but it's UK based and it's really not very well known. And your listeners might want to look into it. It's called Flutter. You ever heard of it? Have not. It's a terrible name. It doesn't translate well in the US. A Flutter apparently in the UK is like a little bet. Like you, you take a look, make a little bet. It's called a Flutter. Horrible name. But anyway... These guys have been doing online sports betting for a generation in the UK and Ireland and Australia, where it's been legal for a generation. So they know their way around how to bet on this. They started with betting parlors, like, you know, walking in into retail betting parlors, and then they transitioned on into this a generation ago. So they understand this. So shortly after the Supreme Court allowed states to legalize sports betting, which was in 2018, Flutter, like within six weeks, bought FanDuel. So FanDuel, you obviously have heard of. It's owned by Flutter. So 
What's interesting is, and you know this, I, I nerd out about this stuff. Like every business is like a battlefield with a competitive dynamic, right? So we've talked about Airbnb and homestay. We've talked about document productivity with uh, Adobe. Now let's talk about sports betting. So the reason FanDuel and DraftKings have dominant shares of the sports betting market is because they were the dominant fantasy sports playing companies. So before sports betting was legal, these guys both had great DFS, daily fantasy sports betting companies where people, you know, people would come and play rotisserie baseball and football and basketball. So both had millions of customers who they could convert like that with zero acquisition costs into sports betting customers. So that immediately gave them a huge head start over companies like Caesars, MGM, Bally's, all the legacy casino companies. They have to acquire customer two or three hundred dollars per pop. And if you want to get a million customers, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of sunk cost. But DraftKings and FanDuel could acquire these customers at next to nothing because they were already daily fantasy sports customers. So it's no surprise that FanDuel is number one market share and DraftKings is number two. But here's the question. Why is FanDuel number one in market share? And the answer is quite interesting and took me some time to figure it out. It's because Flutter, who's been doing online sports betting for a generation, knows how to do it better than DraftKings. So Flutter bought FanDuel several months after the Supreme Court legalized sports betting, and they immediately started putting in their algorithms into, it was different sports, right? Over there, it's soccer and cricket and rugby and horse racing and stuff. Here, it's American football and baseball and hockey, basketball. But the concepts are the same. You, you want to get, you want to engage the customer. You want to give them interesting bets. I'm not a big sports better, so I was surprised to find that it's not really a commodity. It's not like... I'm going to go and spend, you know, bet $5 on the Yankees to beat the Mets. Most of the betting is this exotic parlays, you know, these same game you know, where you have 10 bets and they're all contingent on one another, you know, and Aaron Judge has to hit a home run and, you know, score less than three runs. Bah, 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 bah. Betters, for reasons I don't understand, except for the fact that betting is addictive, uh, which is kind of the dark side of it. But these are bad bets. Like the probability you win over 10 bets is very low. So they have the highest margins, these bets, the highest win rate for the house, but it's what customers love. So FanDuel has much better betting same game parlays than, than DraftKings because DraftKings was started as an American company. They didn't know what they were doing. They were just daily fantasy sports site. They've had to stand up their business from nothing. Like they've had to learn what FanDuel's parent has learned over 25 years. Like huge competitive edge, FanDuel. So it's no surprise that FanDuel this quarter has a 51% market share. And their engagement, their user time spent on their site during the last NFL season was twice that of DraftKings, precisely because FanDuel has better products, more enticing products. So whether it's basketball, football, baseball, people like FanDuel better because they offer more engaging products than DraftKings, which is really kind of learning on the fly how to invent sports betting. So I really like FanDuel. It has multiple competitive advantages, multiple moats, and the stock is cheap. So I don't like DraftKings, but I do like the FanDuel parent flutter. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day -day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. 
If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. That's interesting. Flutter, I'm seeing just on the revenue line, $2 billion in 2019, $4.4 billion in 2020, and $6 billion in 2021. It's larger. It seems to be growing much faster than DraftKings. When was it that they purchased FanDuel? 2018, like literally, I think it was six weeks after the Supreme Court decision. I mean, these guys know what they're doing. They're old school betting pros from the UK. And uh, yeah, so they have grown share at the expense of DraftKings and smaller people. And, you know, they're unlike a lot of these guys, like problem with the sports betting market right now is everyone's chasing customers. You know, it's like the land grab. It's like kind of like Amazon was in the dot-com bus. Like 
Everybody's falling over themselves to get into e-commerce. That's the way it is now with the sports betting. But FanDuel and their parent Flutter has been much more patient than, say, Caesars, which I think is spending a billion and a half dollars, billion and a half with a B, just to acquire customers. But FanDuel is being much more disciplined, letting other people lose money. They're going to turn a profit in their U.S. business in 2023. And, you know, don't confuse a growth industry with a profitable industry. That's one of Buffett's many important maxims. And it's really true in tech. You know, like in the book, I talk about GoPro, which selfie sticks were a growth industry, but everyone could copy GoPro. So their the stock chart went like this. FanDuel, because they have better product and they have better market share, they can take that cash flow from their leading market share and invest it in better product and the flywheel gets going. And then now they have an edge. So they not only have great top line growth, but they have a way to protect that growth through better product, better customer retention, better customer engagement. I almost wonder if DraftKings you know, has solved the equation of sports betting given their revenue growth. I've heard the CEO claim that once they enter a new state, that there's a two to three year payback period until it becomes profitable. And then they just reinvest it back into you know growth, growth, growth. So given that it's just simply an app, is there a moat essentially is my question. The moat for FanDuel, DraftKings does not have a moat. DraftKings is losing market share. Their product isn't as good. They're having to acquire customers at an expensive rate. I've heard that rhetoric that you mentioned. I think a lot of it is fugazi. I think a lot of it is questionable. Whereas FanDuel has proven that they can make money in the UK and Ireland and Australia on on sports betting. They have leading market positions in every region that they really concentrate on. And their moat is twofold. One, they have better product. You know, there's a reason that fans spend twice as much time on FanDuel during the NFL season than they do on DraftKings. Twice as much, not 20%, 30%, 100% more time. Like that's not a coincidence. It's, it's so, so their content is better, number one. Number two, because they're the biggest and the most experienced, they have the deepest betting pools. They have more people betting. It's like a market, right? They're like a market maker and they can see who's betting what. So they have the best odds. They actually can lay better odds than their competitors because they see who's betting what. So their odds in general are five or 6% better than the markets. So if they're offering, if the market is offering two to one for a bet, these guys can offer 2.05 to one. They can offer better odds to me and still make as much money because they have the deepest pool of knowledge. So they're the lowest cost operator as well as the best content. So they have at least two competitive advantages. So I, I really think that FanDuel has a moat. Let's transition to talk about one more trend that, you know, it's an area or an industry that definitely seems ripe for disruption. And that's the real estate sector. The three kind of tech players I see in this sector is Redfin, Zillow, and Open Door. They seem to be the big players, at least in the public markets that I'm aware of at least to potentially transform this industry. Just feels like a dinosaur industry, which is why I wanted to get your opinion on this industry as well. But I guess my first question would be, with all the red tape around real estate, is it even possible to disrupt this industry? I think it is possible, Clay. I don't think it's a question of red tape. I don't think that's what the problem is, why there hasn't been disruption. I think if you look at financial services, you would say red tape and regulation. It's very hard to get a banking license and comply with all the rules, state and federal guidelines for banking. But real estate 
the barriers to entry are quite low. It's, it's why, you know, your mom and all her friends or your dad and all his friends can become real estate brokers like that. But the barriers to entry are quite low. There's one, and, and so I have studied this industry because I had the same instinct as you did. It's, it's a huge industry. It's, it's bigger than oil. It's bigger than oil. It's the biggest industry in America. I can't remember the numbers, but if you add up the mortgage and the title and all this, it's huge. So the opportunity is enormous. I'm not surprised there have been many tech players trying to, to crash the gates. The other company that I'm aware of that's trying to disrupt it is called Compass, which is very uh, popular in New York and Florida. You wouldn't necessarily hear about it in Nebraska, but it, it plays in these high-end markets. And they have this shtick with, uh, we're using the traditional brokerage model, but we have the best tech and, you know. You can look up that stock. It's flat on its butt, like all the other Redfin and Zillow and so forth. So I've thought quite a bit about why these companies haven't been able to disrupt the traditional model because to savvy financial folks like you and me, like why in the world would we pay 6% or if they're feeling generous, 5% to a broker to do something that's not that freaking hard? You know, like stock commissions are zero. What about real estate commissions, dude? You know, and I think the answer, and it does pay to think like this in general in investing, it's not very complicated. It's because, you know, in insurance, they talk about low frequency events and high severity and high frequency events and low severity. So stock trading, you do a lot, preferably not that much, but you, you know, most people do it at least once a week. It's high frequency, but it's low severity. Like not one stock trade is going to make or break you, right? So you're constantly doing it. So that's ripe for disruption because it's on my mind what price I'm paying every week, right? And, and it's not a big deal whether I screw up a trade or not. I just, I'm much more price sensitive. A house is most people's single biggest investment and they don't buy them that often, right? They buy them, I think the average American moves every seven years and often you're not moving to buy a new house, you're renting or whatever. So it's low frequency, but high severity. You don't do it very much, but if you get it wrong, you've screwed up your biggest investment. And most people aren't sophisticated like you and me and, and your listeners. Like They really don't know what the heck's going on out there. Like They don't know how to get a mortgage and how to deal with the title company and how to negotiate with the, the seller. And so they need someone to hold their hand through this biggest transaction of their lives. And I think it really is that simple. I really think it's because otherwise everybody would be flocking to Redfin, which charges what? One, one and a half percent. Why hasn't that caught fire? I think it's because in places like where you live in Nebraska and Indiana and Colorado and Washington State and Alabama and Kentucky, people are nervous about this transaction and they know so-and-so who's been a broker for so-and-so and so many years and they talk a good game and they brag about how much real estate they've sold and they trust them. So it's one of the few examples that have, you know, where these frictional costs, where according to classic economics theory, 6% should go to four, three, two, just like it has in stock trading. But I think because it's this low frequency, high severity deal, I think that's why it's resisted disruption. Yeah, that is an interesting take. Given all the research you've done in real estate, are there any companies you own maybe outside the ones I've listed? I don't own any of those. No. Oh, I mean, I, I can't find a way to crack it. And Zillow, you know, Zillow showed their hand by trying to buy real estate. Like they basically said, this is too hard a business. Like we got to do something else. We need an act too. So, you know, we're going to go from being an asset light app 
to buying homes and flipping them. Like how stupid was that? But it was also a sign of like desperation, kind of like Facebook, like social media might not have legs. Let's bet on the metaverse. Zillow was like that. So it shows you that the, these businesses are just, I mean, sometimes you just got to throw up your hands and go, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on, but it's not working. I think I know the answer. I just explained it, but who knows? That reminds me actually, Berkshire Hathaway is in the real estate business. What sort of role do they play in what they're doing? Oh, I've studied their business. They're total classic old school real estate. So now you drive around and you'll see Berkshire Hathaway, right? Is the realtor and it's a franchise. So you can rent that name and pay Berkshire royalty. But then they also own some uh, real estate agencies. Like there's one in the Philadelphia area that I'm familiar with. And they're super smart about it, as you can imagine, because the commission is just one piece of the real estate transaction. Like there's a lot more money to be made in doing the mortgage, doing the title, doing the servicing. There are all these other little pieces where you can get a nibble. Yep. There's a hundred dollars here, $200 there. It, it all adds up. Yeah. So some of the wholly owned brokerages that Berkshire owns are deep into that. And I can't remember the numbers because it's been a while since I looked at it, but and they call it attachment rates, right? Like the, the broker does the house and they get half of the commission. If there's another broker on the other side, they get 3% commission, which is great. But then like to place the mortgage with a bank to be the agent that placed the mortgage, the average attachment rate used to be, I think, 15%. That one out of seven times, the broker would be able to get extra money for placing the mortgage. At some of these uh, Berkshire things, it's like two or three times that. Title, getting the title insurance, their, their attachment rates are super high because they're working their way up the chain. So no, he has been been very smart about that. And you know, Buffett, his genius is he looks for industries that don't change. You know, That's his genius. And that's why he hasn't been so wild about tech because tech changes so fast. So real estate, he bet correctly. And by the way, it was a tiny bet. I mean, it's a tiny little part of his empire. So it wasn't a huge bet, but he's bet correctly that people want their handheld on real estate. And then we can go and get these attachments, these other services as part of the real estate transaction. So, I mean, Apple in many ways is just a consumer products company, right? It's just something that, you know, you have, you runs your life. And I think I read recently that you, the studies show that you touch your iPhone 150 times a day. That's not going anywhere. So that's in some ways not tech anymore. And I would argue that Alphabet is the same way. And I would argue that Amazon is the same way. They're non-tech tech. Even, you know, Adobe is not that. The Intuit is not that. These are consumer products that are sold on, you know, features and benefits. And like Gillette and Coca-Cola of the late 20th century, people are locked in on them. And um, that's why tech is so interesting. Well, Adam, I know you're very busy relaxing on the beach. So I don't want to take too much of your time here. Before we close it out, I just want to give you the chance to give a handoff to your company, your book, and anything else you'd like to share before we close it out. Sure. Well, thanks, Clay. It's been great visiting with you. Your questions are always thought-provoking and uh, every good money manager should have people questioning him constantly because it sharpens our thinking. Yeah, look, if people are interested in the intersection of value investing and tech, they should definitely get the book, Where the Money Is, Amazon.com. Or if you don't want to give money to Darth Vader, you can go to your independent bookstore and get it. 
And, um, you know, feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm there on LinkedIn. If people want to talk, I've had some nice exchanges with folks and good questions. In terms of my money management business, I run separate accounts. You know, I have a very high minimum of 5 million bucks, but um, you got that much to invest and you want a good long-term money manager to compound your capital, you know, you can find me on the internet. Awesome. Well, I have my copy here and I can Ah. vouch that it's a fantastic book. I had the digital version, but I had to get a physical copy so I could take it with me wherever or read it the next time I'm on the beach. So thank you so much again, Adam. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.